Hello and welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Colette Bennett and I'm Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. Now, as many of our regular listeners will know, we have three types of podcasts. We have our 10-minute lesson series, which gives a very brief overview of policy topics, touching on the main points that we think that our listeners need to know about. We have our seminar series, which is a look back at our seminars and conference presentations by experts such as Professor Tony Fahey, by Lena Carr, by Anne Pettifor, and a whole range of others. And then we have our interview series, and today's episode is one of those. Today, I am delighted to be speaking to Caroline White of FASTA and Kieran Nugent of NERI, the Nevin Economic Research Institute, on the implications for introducing a four-day week. I found this fascinating and I really hope you enjoy it. So welcome to Caroline and Kieran. Thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks, Colette. Lovely to be here. Thanks, Colette. Doing well. Thanks for the invite. So we're here to talk about this whole concept of a four day week. Caroline, if I can start with you, like what, what is it essentially? Is it just that we're all going to have a three day weekend or how would you conceptualise it? Yeah, so that's a good question because there are a few different definitions floating around the place. And so I'll just quickly go through a couple of them. Um, uh, basically, I think the most, maybe the most common one is the idea that we would um, have shortened the 40 hour week to a 32 hour week. And you wouldn't necessarily work one less full day. You might shuffle the hours wrong, along and around and instead have five days of a fewer hours of each day. Um, or you could just have one less day. And sometimes that might be Friday or it might be Wednesday, you know, can be different times so that's a that's a fairly common approach to take um and i know there are various trials that are going on and going we probably talk about them a bit later as well and i think that's the approach that they they're using for example you know um but just to confuse things a little bit some people when they talk about a 40-hour week what they actually sorry a four a four-day working week is what they actually mean instead is a week that's still 40 hours long but where instead you're making it four days so it's four 10-hour days so that's quite a different thing because it's much longer hours, obviously. So that's, you know, but some people, when they say that, that's what they mean. And then, yes, a final idea that some people have is that you you stick with firmly with four days, but you have some kind of flexible hours in between maybe 35 hours or something like that. That goes so, you know, but you're you're basically you're using the time in a different way and you might have a certain day off every week, that kind of thing. But I think the 32 hour week is a is a fairly good kind of model to to talk about because it's it's quite a profound it implies a fairly profound change in working hours you know it's, it's quite a big reduction and and you know and it maps onto the four days as well if you wanted to do that and is that the type of four-day week that you would be advocating for that kind of shorter hours across maybe five days or certainly just you know not the the four days of, of 10 hour days yes definitely yeah i would be say going for for shorter hours for sure myself and Kieran, is, is that would that be similar to Neri's position in relation to the four day week that concept of of fewer working hours or is it a, a case of trying to maintain productivity in a shorter space of days across the week no I think uh, I'm, I'm not speaking on behalf of Neri there we don't we we haven't done much in, in particular on this but I know um force the trade union are are pushing this Joe jo Connor in their um is working on pilot programs uh, actually in a, an international effort there to to normalize it and what they're 
um saying you know as as caroline said there's 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 loads of different ways to um look at that but it's the the concept is kind of to normalize what they call 180 100 so 100 percent of the productivity 80 percent of the time and 100 percent of the pay right so whatever what you know there's different ways to 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 match that up or whatever um so the four day week can be instead of a five day week is where you kind of start um and obviously the the idea behind it is that um workers will well there's 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 um you know retention and, and attracting talent reasons for certain companies to do it um but it's also there's you know buy-in from the workers into this um and what they found in a lot of the trials that they're very enthusiastic and, and really keen to make the trials work and convince their bosses and enjoy that extra day off you know but it's that um uh yeah that's what they call it the 180 100 model in terms of benefits uh caroline again if i can come back to you are we talking mainly that kind of societal benefit that bit more leisure time is there is there an expanded benefit for this absolutely i mean as you say there are strong societal benefits but another important benefit is environmental benefits um uh, as we all know uh, you know we're facing a climate crisis we're facing a biodiversity crisis and we need to cut down on our impact on the environment and it's all very urgent and you know we're in an emergency and the big part of the damage has to do with energy use you know um both the level of energy that's used and also the type of energy that's used particularly fossil fuel energy and of course we're planning to switch to renewable and we're starting on that now but one of the challenges there is finding ways to get by not only on different sources of energy but also on energy altogether less energy use altogether because renewables are great but you know the idea that they could you know deliver energy reliably on the same scale as the level of energy we're using now is quite you know, hard to imagine given the level of technology they're at now or even in the future. Um, so energy efficiency, of course, is great. It's very important. We want to be, you know, want to get more out of every unit of energy that we use, but it doesn't actually always bring about reductions in overall greenhouse gas emissions, for example, because you can save a lot of energy in one sector with great efficiency measures, but then it can end up being used in another sector, you know, because there's no hard limits on the energy that's being used. Uh, that's the Jevons paradox, that's called. It's like a rebound effect and it's a Real hazard that's something we have to be very careful for careful about and so you know we absolutely need better efficiency but you also need sufficiency we need to use less energy altogether in the aggregate and so what this is where it gets really interesting in terms of working hours because there's a very strong correlation between energy use and working hours and there have been tons of studies about that and some very interesting ones um for example, there was a study in France that found that even if you control for income, in other words, so regardless of what people are earning, you tend to use more energy if you work longer hours. And there are various reasons for that. You know, it's it's also to do with the kind of lifestyle that goes with working very long hours, because if you're working long hours, you're not going to have very much time to prepare your own food, cook your own food, go shopping. Um, you're more likely to eat fast food, junk food, very energy intensive food, also not great for your health, but that's another whole 
aspect there. Um, you're also more likely to go on very short holidays, you know, where you're rushing off somewhere on a plane for a weekend or something, you know, and using tons of energy, rushing back, you know. And then, of course, there's all the energy that goes into commuting, you know, and if you're, if you're doing a lot of commuting every single day and it's a long commute, that takes a lot of energy as well. So, you know, if there's all there's all these even little things like drying your clothes, you know, if you're in a rush, you're not going to have time to hang out your clothes and let them dry. You know, you might have to use a dryer and that uses energy too. So all these little things add up. So they found very consistently that there's a real correlation there between, you know, working fewer hours and using less energy. And so, for example, there was a study in 2013 that examined 29 high income countries and they found that shorter hours were associated with lower ecological footprints and carbon footprints, carbon dioxide emissions. And another thing which I found very interesting little fact is that they say that if the US had the same number of working hours as Europe, because of course Europe has much more holidays and, you know, in the in this course of a year, Europe has fewer working hours per person than the US, quite a few fewer. Um, if they had the same number as the US, that would reduce their energy consumption by 20%. So that's really significant, you know, in terms of, of reduction. Um, there's also a study that suggests that if we switch to a four day work, uh, four day week, or 32 hour working week, then we would reduce our energy by at least 16%. So um, yeah, it seems like there's a really strong link there. And there's a real potential there to to make a real difference in terms of absolute energy use. And that's absolutely vital for the environmental challenge. Wow. So like, thank you so much for that. Like, When I was thinking about it in terms of the environmental, I, I have to admit, I was thinking very narrowly, I suppose, um, in terms of, well, you know, if you're trying to aim for that 100% productivity like Kieran was talking about, then how is it really going to change anything in terms of the energy use? But as you say, it's all that knock-on effect that, you know, mm. that, that that lifestyle that comes with having to, to work long hours or feeling that you have to, to work long hours. Um, and, and Kieran, in terms of, I suppose, what kind of change that would mean for the labour market generally, like, Presumably, we'd see less underemployment. Well, are there other? Yeah, I mean, it's not. It's not a right to. Nobody's going to have a right to a four-day week with this campaign. That's not what we're talking about. So, like, there is, there are certain sectors that this is going to work better in. There are certain firms that it's going to work better for. There are certain individuals that might not want want to sign up to it either. You know, um. So as a re, uh, uh, I was discussing this with a, a friend of mine who's uh, in a retail, you know, trade unionist in retail, and he said, "Yeah, that's all well and good, but a lot of my my workers would love a four day week. They they they're getting three day weeks. You know, about I I was looking at the LFS data there recently. About thirty percent of all part time workers would like to work more hours, which means they've income insufficiency there. Um." So on, on the one hand, we have that. On the other hand, we do have other people who work four-day weeks, shift work, like a friend of mine is in the Intel. We know work nurses and healthcare staff have to do that. We know that a Monday to Thursday is not an option for a lot of service provision, right? So you have to find ways to... And when it is, if, if, it, if it is, that's just on Caroline's point earlier on, if you can open the office for four days and obviously you're not... you're cutting down the office electricity bill by 20%. But anyway, going back, going back to what I was saying there, so we, we've got a lot of people who are working way more hours as well. You know the culture we hear about in the world of work in, say, IT or finance, where they're expected to work long, long days. So now these, again, are the areas where the likes of Joe O'Connor and, and activists like himself 
say this, this is probably the area where we're got, it's, 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 it's going to be most likely or most effective to work. But there's, there's cultures there. There's, there's an American work culture in a lot of, a lot of these big IT companies as well, where you'd be, you know, you'd be surprised. There might be resistance there, but at the same time, it would work. That's, that's what, what the argument is. And, you know, the productivity from cutting down hours, and just just having more energy and just being more happy at work and just be, be you know the, the 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 kind of theory behind all this from a, a from an employer's perspective because a lot of employers are 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 signing up is that like discontented staff don't work too well and they tend to distract other staff that may or may not be as discontented so <laughs> in that respect <clears throat> um you're gonna you know this will work in office environments better than it will work in retail. You know, there's even issues around measuring product productivity in different sectors and how you're going to do that and how you're going to prove. You know, it's going to be harder in retail. It's going to be harder in health than it would be in 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 an office environment. So we've seen like Microsoft in Japan trial it, and Japan, you know, Japan. Plus Microsoft probably equals a pretty harsh working kind of environment, um, but they found productivity went up thirty or forty percent. Like and they, Microsoft are going to be the ones who can measure productivity. Um, and Iceland, the successful one there was in government offices. So if yeah, so there, there's all sorts of reasons why this you know it's more of a template it's more of a guiding principle it's more to normalize this as the nine to five office job and then kind of the the other areas where it's not where it wouldn't be feasible and i don't think anybody will argue it's feasible everywhere in in every condition or in in every sector so yeah i mean that that's really interesting it's really interesting to hear about you know microsoft and japan because as you say if there are ever going to be you know a, a meeting of minds in relation to work ethic you've got it there and certainly what struck me when you were talking kiran was you know kind of i suppose around the 2000 early 2000 mid 2000s we had law firms and we had um the likes of google coming in and they had gyms and they had beds and they had crashes and they had you name it and it was all god isn't this an incredible place to work when actually what it is is your entire life has been taken over because you don't have to leave the premises in order to do the things that other people do as their social outlet um so yeah i mean i, th- I think it raises a very very interesting thing something that you mentioned very early on here that i want to come back to is that kind of 180 100 so again, when I first heard about a four-day week, my initial, because I have a background in, in debt and in, in debtedness and open debtedness and, and money management and that kind of stuff, my initial thing was, hang on a second, does that mean there are going to be people on 80% of their salary? How are they going to pay their bills? What does that mean for their life? But the, the thinking is that it would be 100%. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, who wants to take a 20% uh, <laughs> cut in their wages? And I think there's... You know, that might be, again, we're talking about really different groups here and there might be people there who are highly paid individuals in IT and finance who could take that. And, you know, we and then we're talking about the retail workers on, on minimum wage who are dying for a 40-hour week and uh, and probably are going to have difficulty meeting ends meet uh, even with that. Um, so, 
yeah, that's the the idea behind it is that you'll get your you'll get your productivity, and if you can get your productivity with the happier workers, if you can get the same amount of output, um, and finding the right balance between, um, you know, social life and and and, and work life, then it's an open goal, and you you promote kind of. Um, you know, camaraderie and 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 uh, loyalty to to company and teamwork, and well, we're all in this together. And it's a lot of the time, a lot of these trials, because as of that point I'm making about it, 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 it applying to some firms over others, they'll involve their staff, and we we're obviously in the middle of a whole change in terms of working from home and everything like that. They're gonna they're they're involving their staff in how to meet these kind of you know goals of flexibility at the same time as maintaining productivity and what they found of course is that surprisingly actually productivity even went up so you'd be you know there's all sorts of wins here um and if people are have travel expenses or whatever you know there's there's costs there's savings to be made on on you know fixed costs that all businesses have to have to have to pay um on that fifth day um so that's yeah that that that's the the idea behind it. Um, of course, we'll you know we I, I live in Dublin and I can absolutely see the uh, appeal of not having to sit in traffic for one of those days and um, and what that would do even for traffic within the city. If you reduce, just say it won't be twenty percent, but if if nobody goes and travels on their day off. It could be twenty percent at maximum. Say that if if twenty percent of the traffic is off the road in in the city and with bottlenecks and stuff like that, you could reduce uh, commuting times by you know theoretically more than twenty percent because of, of all those blockages and bad planning around the city. So again, it'll be more attractive in big in big cities like that, um, be, um, and for for you know countries without good good public transport infrastructure and stuff like that it, it'll be uh, even more attractive for workers i think i mean I, I i take the point and i take the point in terms of the academic studies that have been done and the, the trials that have been done in relation to you know productivity but as you say and you've, you've both made the point that it's not going to be for every sector it's not going to be for every worker um the concept of selling it to you know kind of i suppose the likes of IBEC or the likes of kind of, of, of corporations in terms of you're expecting to pay 100% of the salary for 80% of the time. You know, what does that mean in terms of businesses? And Caroline, if I could come to you, I suppose, first, what does that mean? Like, how hard is that going to be a sell? I think um, it's it's interesting to look at the history of the working week and how it's evolved over the eight, over the last couple of centuries. And I think that's an interesting point that can be raised in this sort of conversation because um, there was enormous resistance to the forty-eight hour week, you know, to to you know much more working hours than we have now. I mean, basically in the nineteenth century, it was hovering around the sixty-hour level. I mean, it was up there, you know. Then uh, there was all kinds of action. There was a lot of trade union movement and so on. And uh, after the First World War, you know. Uh, there was the formation of the International Labour Organization. And one of the, if I understood right, one of the stipulations for joining that for countries was that they had to have a 48 hour week. So there was a kind of big bang effect and loads of countries all at once 
you know, reduce their working hours quite dramatically. And the, there was a huge resistance from businesses at the time. And I can understand them being scared, you know, but, but in fact, you know, the historical evidence is, as, as, as everybody's been saying here, is that in fact, it wasn't bad for productivity of anything. It was good, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, and then over the decades since then, there have been, you know, not in recent decades, but, you know, up until about 1970 or so, there were, there were more decreases in working hours. And, um, that was more incremental, but again, you know, there wasn't a, a, a big impact, you know, or an adverse impact on, on productivity. Um, but I think, you know, as, all, as has also been said already, it's a little bit nuanced at the same time, because there are, as Kieran was saying, there's some sectors where, you know, what are you actually measuring when you try to measure productivity? You know, it's not, it's not completely clear. Some things it's, it's very simple, like in a factory where you're producing stuff, you know, but if you're doing care work or something like that, you know, how do you, how do you measure the productivity of that or the productivity of looking after a three-year-old you know what's that you know so you know you have to be a little bit careful about the, the use of these measurements i think sometimes and so uh, you know there are different audiences for this um and i suppose one other point i'd like to make is that um if i think you know i think overall most people you know when you do surveys and so on there's a huge sorry, there's a huge uh, um, amount of uh of um enthusiasm about the idea of a four hour or a four i keep saying four hour four day week but um that'd be amazing you know, Sign me up, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it wouldn't affect productivity. No, no, no. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, for things like, for example, care work, or say if you're doing shifts in a hospital or something, you know, you can't obviously close down, you know, like an extra day. That's not going to work. You need to hire more people to fill in the extra time, and that's going to cause more upfront costs for the the hospitals or whoever's doing this. And so there's a, there is an economic impact for that kind of work. And, you know, you can't get away from that. I don't personally think that's a fatal obstacle because I think there are ways around that or ways to, how can you say it, to, to counterbalance that. You know, already I think there'd be a lot of economic goods from the fact that everybody would be, you know, in better form and, you know, there'd be more people employed um, in that sector because there'd be, you know, fewer hours worked, but the a need for, the, I mean, sorry, there'd be the same amount of total hours worked, but fewer hours worked by each individual. So you would need more individuals working in the sector to cover all of those hours. So, you know, it's a way to employ more people as well. So, I mean, the, obviously there are costs, but there are also benefits in terms of all the benefits of being employed and having a good job and, and so on. Um, and, you know, I think overall, in terms of the overall society, you know, in terms of well-being, having time with your family, all of that kind of thing, you know, that would also have very beneficial effects as well. Uh, you know, with Colette, of course, we're working on the, you know, well-being economy stuff. So we're very into this whole idea of of looking past uh, just productivity as the you know or, or GDP growth as the main measure of success and looking at other measures of success as well. So yeah, that brings me to something I suppose, and it, it's probably you'll probably roll your eyes and say typical social justice Ireland, but here we are. Um, it does bring me to the concept of you know that we've argued for a long time about work not being synonymous with paid employment, and that the importance of things like caring work, whether it's for caring for children or caring for, for older people or, or persons with disabilities. We've talked about the importance of engagement with the communities. We've talked about, you know, even working on yourself and, and finding that time to, to do things that you have an interest in, whether it's hobbies or it's education or, or whatever it is. And it just brings me back to the concept of, is this a, is this a good policy to go hand in hand with the likes of a universal basic income? That there's a floor as well as this kind of four day week element or 
have I got that completely off the wall? Kieran, I'll go to you. Um, well, you know, we're not we we we're kind of more focused on universal basic services uh, rather than income in 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 Neary. Um, but <laughs> um, yeah, I I mean the, we we're not. You know, I don't think pay comes into it as much. Um, and obviously, we're everybody should have a, 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 an income that they they can live on. And it just it depends on where we're. Again, this can work in some places, and the place that normalizes is probably through the state and the civil service, and they try and kick it off through there. Um, and you know, have yeah. You know, I, I never thought of that, Colette. To be honest, about the the interaction there with the, with the with the basic income, um. But clearly, um, you know, the the, the work should be paid. We we're looking for a living wage as well in Neary, and, yeah. and and that should be part of any. If we're broadening this conversation of future work and stuff like that, that's an area where where Neary kind of pushes as much as possible as well. Yeah. And, and Caroline, like you've done a, a huge amount in terms of the, the research into this. What other pushback has there been? What other kind of myths have been out there in terms of when other countries have been implementing it? What, you know, what else has been said that could be combated by the likes of the pilots and with the evidence that you have? I think the the main thing is is the productivity issue, which we've talked about. But it's kind of a, it's such a huge thing because it sort of feeds into really important you know factors that are you know taken into account for economic success. You know, like just basically ex- expansion of the economy, um, the ability and the ability to be competitive. I mean, competitiveness is is a big one. You know, and uh, I mean, a lot of countries are afraid of in all kinds of areas as we know you know other areas taxes for example you know of, of changing um their policies because they're afraid that they would be undercut you know by others and so on and so um i actually you know before i knew we were doing this podcast just by coincidence i listened to a, a podcast or a webinar by the um head of the ilo who was mentioning that um he thinks that a four-hour week uh, the best way to bring it about would be to have some kind of multilateral, um, international, you know, simultaneous uh, movement to, you know, to legalize it because that would undercut this fear of competitiveness being undermined. And this this would actually mimic what happened in 1919, you know, when the IELO member countries all simultaneously brought in this policy. Now, I don't know if that's really necessary or or if it's possible at this point because things have changed. You know, as we all know, at the time, trade unions had. A huge amount of power that they possibly don't have as much now, unfortunately. So, you know, there are various things that have changed. But uh, I think the idea of uh, with like with a lot of these things, I think um, talking about it and result, trying to figure out what's what the needs are that are hidden behind demands that seem irreconcilable. Like, you know, how can we possibly compete that nation, or how can we keep our place in the pecking order, and so on. You know, talking about all of that could help to maybe find out ways to resolve this sort of issue. But it is a big fear, I think, this whole competitiveness thing. And it does feed, you know, it derives from the fear of loss of productivity, which is not all that, you know, it's nuanced, but it's, you know, there's not a very good, strong case for that fear of loss of productivity, I'd say. I think yeah. um, competitiveness is, you know, the advocates for the four-day week will, 
you know, point, so competitiveness will be more based on a firm, firm level rather than the whole country. I mean, I, I, you know, the, the, the Netherlands have kind of normalized this years ago. It, it's not everywhere, but it, it, it's quite prevalent. And how they will argue that this could actually be competitors, uh, could prove competitiveness is that it, they, they will argue that you can attract talent based on this, right? Who doesn't want a four-day week instead of a five-day week? If you're highly skilled in your area, you might even move from some a country to another country to get a four-day week for the same pay or, or, or whatever. So that, that would be the, their arguments there that um, you can, uh, this is actually, will underpin, underpin productivity and competitiveness by, um, by, by getting the most out of enthusiastic workers and, and attracting the best talent who want the best conditions. Some people want to work for 80 hours a week, but no. Yes. Um, and certainly, I mean, I, there is a, there is a version of me from a previous life that would definitely have worked 80 plus hours um, as a norm. And, you know, when I think about it now, I kind of feel a bit unwell for myself. Um, and it's something I suppose you know, when we talk about this and we talk about we talk about these kinds of policies, these kinds of, you know, because there are a behavioral change, a kind of a systemic thought shift. Um, we get that kind of pushback around, well, you don't want to be the early adopter. What if it doesn't work? And what if that then hinders your your, as you say, your competitiveness and your place in you know the rankings and all of those things? But what strikes me as well is that we have a version of it in the likes of parental leave. I, so, so I am somebody who works a four-day week. I spread it over five days. Um, so I finish up a little bit earlier. I can collect my kids from school. I can do the dreaded homework and, you know, all of those things. Um, and there's surely a cohort there that, you know, is ripe for a study if that was, you know, if, if you could actually recruit enough people who are on parental leave at a four-day week to look at their working, their working hours, their productivity, their 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 kind of their identity, their sense of of satisfaction with their work. There's just on one part of that. There's obviously a gender issue there that nearly do a lot of work on in terms. And we, we wrote a report there recently about um, labour markets, um, you know, employment rates for women in the kind of have, having children age bracket, you know, and that they drop out of the labour market because there's structural issues there in terms of the cost of childcare in Ireland. Um, so you know, this isn't to you know advocate not 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 uh, having a, a a public and well funded childcare system to 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 address these things, but in in the absence of that you know, the four-day working week will make those things easier and, you know, perhaps stop so many women dropping out of the, the labour market in, in their 30s and 40s in Ireland, which is which is relatively normal in a European context. Um, so that in that respect, that, that would be great, you know, if, and even if there were two people four days and they took different days each, you're, you're, you've two days less childcare to, call, to, to, to pay for, which is, you know, crazy crazy prices in Ireland. I remember talking to a, a recruiter in the finance side of things kind of the legal and finance side and they were saying that they would always look for women particularly women of, of childbearing age because if you give any sort of allowance they're far more productive because they're so grateful 
for that allowance. Right. Like that says an awful lot about where we are as a society. Um, but certainly when you talk about productivity, you know, it's because you don't want to be seen to drop. You don't want to be seen because, you know, you're a mother. You don't want to be seen to be letting the ball drop. Um, but it is, it's, 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 it's crazy. It's a crazy indictment of where we are. So what is needed overall to make this kind of, of policy shift, this system change? Caroline, I'll come to you first, please. Sure. Um, I think I mean, there's some obvious things like just talking about it more, um, you know, trials like what's happening now in Ireland and other countries. That's all really great. Um, what I would say in, in sort of a faster perspective, if you like, is that I also think we need to really look at the dynamics that are pressuring the whole the whole economy to try to maximize productivity at no, at no matter what cost, you know, and to try to ease those dynamics and, and to try and maxim, you know, to try and ease the dynamic of, of um, basically of, of expansion, you know, because from an environmental point of view, you know, that's problematic. Um, and from a social point of view, also, I would argue that's problematic. And, you know, I certainly recognize that there are a lot of reasons why there's an emphasis on expansion. I'm not saying those reasons don't exist, but I think it's good to really look at that as, as coolly as we can and try and think of, well, how can we change this? Because an awful lot of it, I think, has to do with things like, for example, like Colette, you mentioned debt earlier. You know, people need to work long hours so that they can pay interest on the mortgage or whatever. You know, there's a the, the whole way that these things are set up it puts pressure on people to work a lot of time to, you know, just to keep basically like to stay in the same place, you know, and you know, even work more, you know, I mean, there's a kind of a dynamic there where you're sort of running to stay still. And, you know, there are ways that these things can be looked at and addressed. And historically, they have been over time a lot. I mean, the whole history of death is, is fascinating, you know, in humanity's relationship to death. Um, so, I mean, these things can be looked at, I think. And uh, I think it's good to be having that broader conversation as well and, and seeing what the dynamics are. Another thing I I'd like to just quickly mention is we talked about universal basic income and universal basic services and for faster for us those two things are very very important both and you might think oh how could we possibly afford that you know but the idea for us is that if you bring in both you know if you strengthen social services and you have ubi then you actually end up the two bring each other's costs down because the two reinforce each other and um UBS, the services, I'm really glad Kieran mentioned that because to me, that's absolutely vital to having a, an economy that's delivering what we want and what we need. And if you have good services, then you're going to bring down the, your costs, you know, in all kinds of ways, you know, like the, the pressure on the healthcare system, you know, all kinds of things like that are going to be eased. And again, that's going to be a much healthier dynamic. So there are all kinds of structural things like that that I think can help. And, and these you know, in different areas, and they might, on the face of it, have nothing to do with the four-hour, four-day four week. But actually, really, you know, they will actually, they, they will all make it easier for us all to have a more sane working schedule in the end. So. Yeah, I think you raise a really interesting point, and it would be Social Justice Ireland's position as well that the, the I suppose, were probably more synonymous with universal basic income, but that it goes hand in hand with universal basic services because there needs to be both. We need to have kind of a set floor of services that we know people need. We need healthcare, we need education, we need childcare, those kind of things that are, are, are housing, those fundamental things for us. And then we need this, this ability to be able to, to pay for the discretionary things, the things that I might feel that I need, but you may not necessarily you know, want in your life. So it's, it's, it's that kind of thing that goes hand in hand to make a, a fairer, more equitable society. Um, and I think 
you know, part of that, we can see it already when we look at the likes of the impact on the housing costs on the living wage, for example. You know, the, the gap between the minimum wage and the living wage is only what it is because of the rate of inflation with housing costs, that it kept pace with other costs. It would be somewhere in the region of 30 to 50 cents. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an incredible kind of tie-in, I suppose, with that thing of, of income and, and services. Um, Kieran, even the last word to you. What is needed to make this policy shift? I mean, I'm just thinking up some radical solutions right now, but like, uh, you know, just implement it in schools. That's it. It's done. It's normalised then. You have to... Um, look, that's... Uh, that is a very radical uh, position. It's not uh, an official nearly position. But that's <laughs> that's where you want to um, start is in the civil service. Again, it's not going to take hold everywhere. So you can only kind of set, try to make it the normal, you know, default setting of office uh, workers and of um, uh, uh, and in these particularly. Um, you know the, the the sectors of finance and IT. I'd say and once if you if you convince, kind of, you know those businesses are kind of you know for want of a better term thought leaders and 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 you know innovate whatever you want to call them innovators they're leading the way they're the they're the ones we kind of as a society. Um, no, I'm not saying this is good or bad thing, but look up to like, and so if if you can bring in programs pilot programs across the civil service and in and 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 convince these high productivity um sectors that they can even improve productivity even more so in by bringing this in then then you're you're on the way but again you'll never it'll it'll never work for everyone or every firm or every sector that's it but that's i, I would say that's the, the way to do it and those those trials are um now producing the results that are needed, like forty percent in Microsoft. This is this is massive in Japan, like forty percent productivity. That's you know it's unheard of uh, in in a short space of time. Like um, uh, those productivity gains. So and Iceland as well in the civil service. I don't know how they measured the productivity, but they did, and they put it at close closer to thirty percent when they when they brought that in in, in the civil service. So. Um, I think it'll it'll um, those things will are doing their job as it is, and I think we are looking into a a, a future with the right pressure, with the right politics, and uh, and that kind of stuff. Um, I th- I think it could become normal for for a lot of people in the in the not too distant future. And Caroline, if just taking the cue there from Kieran, I know I said I was giving him the last word, but you know, if you were to t- if you were to go off piste uh, as he did, if you were to take the really radical solution, what kind of things would you be talking about? Oh boy, uh, <laughs> I don't have an answer prepared. Sorry. Uh, the yeah, um, I keep thinking of things, and then I think something's wrong. You know, I think of a problem. So, um, I mean. You could just legislate, you know, uh, and see what happens. Like, but yeah, <laughs> but I'm not completely sure. I, you know, I go along with that. It just came into my head, but I just, you know, just brainstorming here. But yeah. <laughs> we won't take it as an official fast submission. <laughs> if if you introduce like overtime for the fifth day or something like that, you know, a right to overtime for the fifth day, 
something like that could be, you know, true legislative process. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I, I can hear industry, you know, on, on pitchforks at the street level coming in with that. <laughs> so with that, um, I want to say thank you so, so much, both of you, for your time, for your energy, uh, for all your inputs. Uh, I can't wait to get this, this podcast out there. Um, so thank you so, so much. Thanks, Colette. It was uh, thank you. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions or queries, or particularly if you have any views or ideas for future episodes, please don't hesitate to get in touch at secretary at socialjustice.ie. Until next time, stay safe.